Gresham College presents Experience and the Spiritual Dimension by Professor Keith Ward. Well, I'm very sorry indeed that Lord Plant is ill, um, but I'm quite pleased to have the opportunity to come back to Gresham College, where I had a very happy time, and do some more talks. What I'm going to do is talk loosely about this book. It's called The Evidence for God. There it is. So if you don't um, like anything I say, you will hate the book. Um, I'm talking loosely about it. Um, there's also a handout, which I think you get at the end, if not at the beginning. Uh, but I'm not going to read the handout. So what I'm going to say is completely original, and it will surprise me as much as it will surprise you, I expect. But I am going to talk, uh, first of all, about experience... Uh, and the spiritual dimension. And I've chosen that phrase, the spiritual dimension, because, of course... (coughs) Sorry, I've got a cold. Because um, a lot of people say, one of the most common things for people to say in Britain, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious. And whatever that means, I think part of its meaning is (coughs) that religions are concerned with institutions... Uh, Perhaps they feel committed to very old and uh, sometimes very difficult to understand dogmas in terms of philosophies which we don't accept anymore. Uh, And they're committed often to moral beliefs which have changed out of recognition. And so a lot of people don't want to be committed to a religion in particular, but they still have a feeling uh, for the spiritual. And perhaps you don't know this, that in British schools it is the law Uh, that schools must teach spirituality throughout the whole curriculum. I've asked one or two maths teachers how they do this, and they haven't got the slightest idea. But there it is. So spirituality is part of the curriculum in British schools. So what on earth does that mean? Well, I think spirit, of course, uh, uh, I suppose, really goes in that use back to Hegel, uh, using the German word Geist, and spirit, absolute spirit, was distinguished from God in this way, that God is a male term, uh, and it is a term which is used usually for a personal being. Some people, like Richard Swinburne, even say God is a person, but you get the idea of somebody rather like a a human being who interferes in the universe from time to time. And if you talk about spirit, you don't have those gender implications, you don't have the implications that this is a person in some way that you're talking about. Spirit is more vague, I think Sanskrit has one of the best expressions for spirit, and that expression is sat, chit, ananda, which uh, could be translated in Sanskrit, which could be translated as being consciousness and bliss. And if people talk about nirvana too, that is described in terms of bliss and intelligence. So they're not absolutely impersonal words. I mean, you can't have bliss unless you've got something like a mind which is feeling bliss. So it's a mind-like reality, but I think people would say not, <coughs> not a person, and also not even not a person, but uh, not a separate being from you. So spirit is often thought of as an all-including reality. So there's a Hegelian background to this, that the whole universe is a self-unfolding of the nature of absolute spirit. And you could say, I am part of that absolute spirit. Now, there are lots of technical difficulties about um, talking about being part of God or not part of God, when it's God that you're talking about. Uh, Because Thomas Aquinas, for example, says at the beginning of his Summa Theologia, his great work on theology, that we do not know what God is. 
If you believe that, then there's no point asking whether you're parts of God or not, because you don't know whether you are or not, because you don't know what God is. So clearly these questions are very difficult uh, to answer. Talking about spirit, of course, is not what a lot of people who talk about spirituality mean. They've probably never heard of Hegel and aren't very interested in Hegel. So in actual schools, I have discovered, going around and asking people, um, spirituality is used to represent, well, your sense of values, or the things you feel ultimately are valuable in your life, or things uh, to which you would commit yourself with some uh, degree of uh, absoluteness. <coughs> so a humanist could be interested in spirituality. Well, I don't want to explore those words just for the sake of it, and I will say that the appeal to etymology is really an appeal which is totally useless. Uh, never ask what religion means etymologically. It's a complete waste of time. There is no reason at all why what it meant originally has anything to do with what it means now. Right? So forget it. Right? That's one of my hobby horses. Do not ever ask an etymological question. It's a philosophical waste of time. So you've got to start somewhere else and say, well, how is the word used now? And of course, it's used in lots of different ways. So the reason I'm thinking about spirituality is I don't want to tie what I'm talking about down to something called God. I'm a priest of the Church of England, so I probably think there is something called God. But I don't want to tie what I'm saying down to that. I want to leave it more open. And so I'm talking about a spiritual dimension. That is, whatever you think is an ultimate value, if there is such a thing for a human life, whatever it is, that might make humans fulfilled or um, happy in a rather rich sense, like Aristotle's sense of eudaimonia, uh, that is, uh, complete human fulfillment and well-being. Uh, if you're thinking about things like that, I have to include that in spirituality. So I'm starting off <coughs> today... I'm terribly sorry about this cough. I cannot get rid of it. I'm starting off today uh, with a philosophical approach, because I am a philosopher by training and asking, well, what's the basis of human knowledge, anyway, and how should one talk about a spiritual dimension? I have to say straight away, a lot of philosophers in uh, England and America today wouldn't talk about a spiritual dimension. In fact, they'd probably um, sort of get immensely angry if you tried to talk about spiritual dimension. But they're all wrong. Uh, it's not only that they're all wrong, uh, they're taking a very extreme and idiosyncratic view, but it just happens to be very fashionable at the moment. I'll talk more about that next time. But I want to start from a philosophical position which allows for the spiritual. And strangely enough, you may think, that tradition is the main British philosophical tradition known as empiricism and associated with... Uh, the three men who went into a pub, an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scot. And they are, of course, John Locke, Bishop Berkeley, and David Hume. They were all empiricists, and they define the traditional view of empiricism. So I'm going to start talking about that and say, well, what's that got to do with the spiritual or a spiritual dimension? Can you really talk about that? One of the people who taught me philosophy in the dim past was A.J. Eyre, Freddie Eyre. He also was an empiricist. He thought he was a follower of Hume. I don't think he was myself, but he thought he was. And he uh, also would never have talked about the spiritual. If you remember, he wrote a little book, which was very famous in his day, called uh, Language, Truth and Logic. Uh, and this frightened clergy all over uh, the United Kingdom because it said uh, that the word God didn't make any sense. Uh, used to say, 
I'm not an atheist because I don't know what atheism means. I don't know what the word God means. In that, of course, as I've just said, he agreed with Thomas Aquinas, but he didn't think he agreed with Thomas Aquinas. So what is this empiricism, and how is it that people like Eyre could say empiricism has nothing to do with the spiritual, wouldn't allow it at all? So that's where I'm starting from. The empiricist position, which starts, is uh, all knowledge begins with experience. Right? So that's the first dogma of empiricism. All knowledge begins with experience. And uh, I agree with that. But it has two implications straight away. If all human knowledge begins with experience, uh, and that's what, experience, what knowledge is based upon, in the end, your knowledge has to go back to some sort of experiences. Well, for a start, you can never deny the place that you start from. You can never say there are no such things as experiences. Well, you may say, that's, I've never thought of saying there are no such things as experiences, but I assure you that many philosophers do. And the best-known one is probably Daniel Dennett. Have you ever heard, come across Daniel Dennett? Just as a matter of interest, how famous is Daniel? Is he a celebrity? Has he made the television? Well, he's very famous among the five people who are my friends. Uh, and uh, Daniel Dennett is a materialist philosopher, so he, he thinks that actually uh, consciousness is the firing of C-fibers in the brain. It's the electrochemical uh, impulses between neurons in the brain. And that's what consciousness is. It's identical with that. <coughs> well, if you say that, then there really aren't any experiences. And Daniel Dennett does, I assure you, say, and he often goes on television to say this, so it must be true, he says, well, uh, consciousness just is the firing of neurons in the brain, so to think that it's something different from that is an illusion. So consciousness is an illusion. Well, what I'm saying at this point is, if you're an empiricist, you could never say that, because consciousness is what you start from. Conscious experience is where you start. <coughs> so a materialist who's going to say there is no consciousness is cutting off the branch on which he's sitting. Right? So that's out of the question. But you've still got to ask what experiences are. Uh, and that's uh, quite a difficult question. We know roughly what they are. And I do want to say that if you read books about science or read The New Scientist, for example, you'll often find consciousness referred to as the hard problem. And the reason it's referred to as the hard problem is if you adopt a scientific attitude and you look at what happens in the brain and you take brain scans and you see electrical activity in the brain, and it's a very hard problem to find consciousness. Right? Because a brain scan doesn't show you consciousness, it shows you blood flow, it shows you electromagnetic activity in the brain, it shows you some very interesting things about how many bits of the brain work when you're thinking, but it doesn't ever show you what you're thinking. Uh, so that's a big problem. Where does consciousness originate from? So the hard problem is only a hard problem for materialists. That is, people who assume there is a brain, right, and it's got physical things going on in it, and that's obvious and unproblematical, but it's very problematical and unobvious how consciousness could arise from this. We can't really see how it would work. It doesn't fit into the causal scheme of the material brain at all. So it's the hard problem. Well, <coughs> I think for an empiricist, it's not a hard problem at all. In the sense that time is not a hard problem for somebody who lives in it. 
I mean, there are lots of problems about time, of course, but you say time is just going through experiences one after another. That's what time is. And if somebody says, what exactly do you mean? You wouldn't know how to reply because that's what it is. It's just obvious. Things happen one after the other. You say, that's what I mean by time. Okay. So that's okay. Well, why not say the same about consciousness? Consciousness is that which I am most aware of the basis of all my knowledge, which is happening now. I see, I touch, I feel, um, and these things are basic. So just as a materialist might take gravity to be basic, that would be a very weird belief, by the way, to believe that, but some people do. So gravity is just a basic force. It's just obvious. It's, you don't have to ask what its nature is. It's just there. Well, so I'm suggesting, an empiricist would always suggest, consciousness is basic. It's a basic reality, which you are more aware of, more clearly aware of, more intensely aware of than anything else. So the problem is not how do you get consciousness from an obviously existing physical brain. The problem is how do you get a physical brain from something so obvious as consciousness? And I don't know. So there is a little problem there. Why does the physical brain exist at all? That's the problem. So the British empiricists weren't sure that there were physical brains. So they had a very different problem from the most modern neuroscientists who don't practice empiricism. They don't practice any philosophy usually. But uh, the empiricists would say, no, conscious experiences, we know what they are. We have them. We know in our own case what they are. Physical brains, <coughs> do they even exist? Well, now you may say, I've gone mad, but I assure you, I haven't, because uh, John Locke wasn't mad, Bishop Barclay wasn't mad, no, they were actually quite penetrating intellects. And they would have said, well, you know the question, it comes up, you know, first year of philosophy all the time, how do you know what things are like when you're not looking at them? So you know what a glass of water is, and I better have one, that's a good idea. Mm. Uh. Now I can't read my script. Well, well, that's it. So you know what a glass of water is, and there it is. Uh, but actually, uh, if you closed your eyes or went out of the room, would it still look like that? So you know this philosophical question. And the answer to it is obvious. No, it wouldn't look like that at all. Now, I've been pretty scathing about materialists, but suppose you ask a, a scientist, but inks all run on this thing, I don't know. So I've been very scathing about some people, but not about scientists as such. And if you say to a scientist, let's take the average quantum physicist, is there such a thing? Well, let's pretend there is. Jim Al-Khalili is pretty average quantum... Oh, no, no, he's a very good quantum <laughs> physicist. Um, and you ask him, uh, what, what is this really? What is this glass of water really? What's it like when nobody's looking at it? And he has actually said on television, you may have seen the programme recently on quantum physics, he said, well, um, it would be... Uh, uh, an 11-dimensional set of probability waves in hyperspace. Well, whatever that is, it doesn't look like that. Okay. I don't know what that is. But anyway, what quantum physicists tell you reality is like is nothing like what things look like. Now, uh, we know this. Plato made the distinction decades, centuries ago, between appearance and reality. We see things as they appear to us. But the way they appear to us is due to our particular mental apparatus of interpretation. And they don't look like that to dogs, for example. Glasses of water do not look like this to dogs. How do I know? I don't. But I guess it's true. 
And why I guess it's true is their rods and cones in their eyes are different from ours. So I infer, I guess, that probably because the mechanism to the brain is different, they're going to see things differently. There's a very interesting and influential philosophical article um, called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? don't know if you've come across that article. Um, and the answer is, we don't know, so that's the end of that. <laughs> but the point about it is, um, there is something that it is like to be a bat. Just as there's something that's like to be us. I and mean, we know what it's like to be us, to see this room with colours, brown, yellow, right? we know what those colours are. But we haven't got the slightest idea of bats see things in colour. They echolocate, so they use sound. Well, does that sound produce colours? Do they see coloured things? Are there any coloured things? <coughs> well, again, your scientists will say, no, there aren't actually any colours. There are electromagnetic waves of various wavelengths, and we happen to be able to interpret the ones between infrared and ultraviolet. There are lots of vibrations we can't see. Uh, those colours aren't really there. I remember going to the uh, radio telescope uh, laboratory in Cambridge, uh, and saw these beautiful pictures on television sets of the, the nebula and the stars in the sky. And the beautiful colours on these pictures. Uh, and I said, well, are they really that colour? And they pointed outside to all the radio aerials all, all over the ground and said, look, <laughs> these are radio aerials. How do you think we get colours out of that? So does that mean they're not that colour? Yes, it does mean that. And the pictures you get of all the nebulae are actually computer constructions which interprets certain wavelengths as colours. And they're very pretty. But do they look like that? To us, they do. But of course, they're not that colour, really. They are electromagnetic vibrations. There would be no colour without mind. Right, so here's the point. There aren't any colours without mind. Are there any solid things? We look solid. We're solid bodies. Can't get through them. Well, no. I mean, all of us know we're made of atoms. They're not solid, they're mostly empty space. So you already know we're 95% water, we're also 98% empty space. It's all space between all the little bits inside the atoms. But we don't look like that. So here's an obvious distinction an empiricist must make straight away. If you're an empiricist, experiences, <coughs> that is, sights and sounds and touches, etc., they're definitely real. You can't eliminate them, they are real. But they're not real when they are unobserved. They don't have that reality. It's not that there's nothing there, but if you ask the question, what is there, it's very difficult to answer what it would be. Right? And if you talk about 11-dimensional hyperspace, that's not much help, really. Uh, when I was at school, I was taught that electrons were little planets going around the nucleus of an atom. Now I know that's completely wrong. They're not that at all. So if you ask, well, what is an electron, you'll say, well, it's a probability wave which gives you the probability of finding an electron at a specific location if you carry out an experiment. But it's only a probability. It's actually superposed in lots of different places at the same time. You say, OK, what sort of thing is that? And, of course, uh, Jim Michaelini would say it's not a thing at all. It's a mathematical construction. So what have you got? You've got uh, either appearances, sense experiences, or mathematical constructions. Which one is real? Well, Niels Bohr, one of the founders of quantum physics, couldn't decide which one was real. He said, well, look, it's either uh, probability waves, and that's what's real, uh, and then we don't know how you get your 
experiences from that, or what's real is your sense experiences and probability waves are some sort of mathematical construction which enables us to deal with um, the operations, things that are happening, uh, with postulated things that we postulate. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is it's not such a silly question after all to ask, what are, are there any things that exist when we're not looking at them? And what are they like? And that's the first problem for empiricists. Empiricists have no way of knowing what things are like when they're not being observed. <coughs> so you don't have to deny there are things. You just say, well, the, the way things appear, that's real. That's what we know best of all. But that there is a physical world of things existing when we're not looking at them is a postulate. It's a construction. AJI used to say, physical objects are logical constructions out of sense data. That was his way of putting it, right? And that's the authentic empiricist position from which uh, I wish to start. I just want to make the difference between that view and somebody who says, no, I know that brains are real. I'm not sure about experiences. Whereas I think the empiricist would say, I'm, I know experiences are real, but what are brains like when nobody's looking at them? Okay. And what we do, of course, is we think, we pretend we're looking at them. You know, we, we think, all right, I won't look at them, but I can imagine them looking just the same. <laughs> so you're still thinking what they would look like if you were looking at them, but you're not. So I'm not arguing there's nothing there. That's not my argument. My argument is simply that what you know, most obviously, is not what is there right? when you're not looking at it. It's an appearance of something which in itself exists very differently. So experiences become, for an empiricist, mediators of a reality which you do not observe, you do not directly know. Which enables me to move on to my second point. The first always, all knowledge begins with experience. <coughs> and the second point is, all experiences need to be interpreted. That's the second dogma. If you just had experiences without interpretation, without any intellectual interpretation, you wouldn't know how to make sense of them. You wouldn't know that they were bodies in a room. They'd only be colored patches. And actually, you know that we see basically in two dimensions. Right? So the fact that we construct three dimensions out of this when, when we look at things because of the, we have two eyes, but each eye sees in two dimensions, the fact that we construct that as a mental construction um, tells you something that you postulate is real, is veridical. You say there is a space and there is a time outside our experience, but I'm constructing that. It's a construction. It doesn't mean it's false. It means I am constructing it. Um, and its status is, is that of a postulate, which I make, in order to make sense of my experience. So what you're now saying, if you're a good empiricist, is I have to make sense of my experience. And the easiest way to do this is to regard all the colors, the shapes, the sounds, the sights that I hear, which are just a great mess of, of, of things going on, to interpret them as appearances of continuing physical objects, which I know don't exist in the same way when I'm not observing them, but which I have to think of as continuing in the same way, otherwise I can't imagine them at all. So I imagine the world existing just like this when I'm looking at it, even though I know it's not strictly true. And imagining that helps me to make sense of my experiences. In fact, I probably couldn't even make sense of my experiences now 
if I didn't think you were people who are going to walk out of this room at the end of the talk or even before. So, uh, so interpretation becomes very important, intellectual interpretation. And that was the trouble with Freddie Eyre, actually, because he didn't make that move. He was happy with saying all knowledge begins with what he called sense data, sights and sounds and touches and so on. But he wasn't very happy with the intellectual interpretation of sense data. He wasn't really very happy with an external world at all. He couldn't really quite work out how, how to get an external world. I used to sit in similar seminars with him and other people. We were all sitting around. And I would say, um, well, all we know are sense data. Sense data are things that appear to me in my field of consciousness, sights and sounds and touches. Now, I don't know if any of you, he would say, are, are thinking, are you having thoughts? I mean, they're not in my sense data. You know, I don't know. I'd have to guess whether you were thinking. Are you thinking? And we wouldn't tell him. We wouldn't tell him whether we were thinking or not, you see. So he never knew. And I think he thought we were all zombies. I think he really did. Some zombies got degrees and some didn't. But there you are. Um, there's a big problem for an empiricist about thought. Because you could say, well, I don't only have sense data in immediate experience. I have thoughts as well. I know that I do. Thoughts occur to me. They happen. They are parts of my consciousness. But other people's thoughts? No, that, that's really quite a big problem. And I think, so if you're a very uh, rigid, a very extreme empiricist, as I actually was, I should tell you how he gave all this up just before he died. He, he changed his mind completely and said he'd been wrong. But for most of he's still known as a, the, the great logical positivist, even though he changed his mind at the end. He had a vision, but I won't go into that. So uh, you have these sense experiences and... The problem for the empiricist is, you know, I go along with a starting point. Knowledge begins with experience. But surely it doesn't stop there. To make sense of those experiences, you must use an intellectual interpretation. And one of the intellectual interpretations is there is a world of external physical objects which appear to me in certain conditions and at certain times in my experience. I know this because of my experience, but I have to make that inference to make sense of my experience. And I, I agree entirely with that. But as stopped there, okay, and just said, that's it, I want to press the question a little bit further and say, well, look, don't you then have to admit that to make sense of your experience, which is undoubtedly real, to make sense of it, you have to make intellectual inferences about what it is that you are experiencing. In other words, experiences are always experiences of something other than you. Right? So you, you have experiences, sense experiences, but those experiences are of an objectively existing world which you do not directly know except as they appear to you. Right. Now, I think that when you put it like that, it ought to sound pretty obvious, really. And, but it leads you to ask the question, well, what is that external reality which appears to us through experience and therefore is channeled by our minds and their own nature? Uh, what is it really like? <laughs> And do we have to say that it's only a physical world of things with location, position, velocity in space and time? And that's all there is. Whereas in our experience of a vivid world of colors, of sounds, of, of things that you like or you dislike, that whole rich emotional world which goes along with your experience, is that just... In the mind, is it purely subjective? It doesn't reflect anything in the external world at all. So here's the point I'm coming to. 
If you start by saying, my experience is interpreted in terms of a reality beyond it, aren't you already talking about something transcendent to your experience? And aren't you saying that you experience transcendence in a way that appears particularly to you? And it might only appear to you that way. We sometimes call that madness, but there's no particular reason why we should. It might appear to different people in different ways. Fortunately, it appears the same way to most of us, roughly. You know, we needn't answer the old philosophical question, does green to me look like green to you? We can ignore that. Fortunately, we agree uh, on colours that we can associate to things. So we assume our experience is very widely shared. But is experience, if it's of something transcendent, is that transcendence only what we might call physical? Now here's where I wanted to bring the spiritual into the discussion. I see no reason why the world which we have to assume to make sense of experience should be only a purely physical world. In fact, on the contrary, I think a purely physical world is as an abstraction from the richness of experience. And that experience mediates much more than physical things to you. And you might put it like this, that it mediates feeling. Feeling mediates reality. Okay. You might think that only thought mediates reality, so especially mathematics. So it's quite a favoured theory these days that the real world is a mathematical world. So it's the structure of mathematics. And if Stephen Hawking writes a book about a brief history of time, a very long one, and then the shorter one later on, he'll be talking about mathematical <laughs> entities, really. Uh, so he'll be saying things like the space-time continuum is more real than the sense we have of going through time, one thing after another. You know, one of Stephen Hawking's favourite sayings you know, is that actually... Um, time turns into space uh, very near the Big Bang. Uh, I'll leave you to contemplate that. Uh, but it means that time need not be the way we experience it, one thing after another. It could be something quite different. Mathematically, you can see how that's done, actually, because you can take variables for space and time and just transpose them, and that's quite easy. But if you try and imagine what that's like, you can't do it. Right? That's very difficult indeed. But still there's a thought that uh, people have these days <coughs> that the real world is somehow a mathematically structured world. And I want to put a question mark against that and say, well, might not feeling, the feeling that we have, when we come across things and we see them as beautiful or as ugly, as pleasant or as distasteful, might this not tell you something about the real world? Your feelings of things your likings, your dislikings, these things are appearances to you. That's very true. They've got that subjective dimension. But why shouldn't they tell you something about reality? Well, I'm going to propose that they do. And I'm going to look at two things, art and morality, to say that these are dimensions of human experience which give you insight into a transcendent reality which is not physical. And that's what I'd call the spiritual dimension. So I think it's very natural for an empiricist to say there is a spiritual dimension and we are directly aware of this as it appears to us. So how does it appear in us? Well, let's take art first. By art I mean beauty. Things in nature that you think are beautiful, attractive, moving, uh, you know, uh, the sight of a, uh, a certain... <coughs> 
piece of nature or the side of a piece of art can move people to tears. And is that a purely subjective reaction? Well, that's where AJS said it was. It's purely subjective. There's nothing out there that corresponds to that. You've just got shapes in a certain order. Anything else is a purely subjective reaction. But is that true? Isn't the way you appreciate art or music or literature telling you something about the nature of reality which you don't directly experience through that art, through that disposition of colours and shapes on a piece of paper, for example, through that <coughs> you have an experience of something more than that. Right? I'd say an experience of, of beauty. I mean, for me, it's music, which, you know, we each have a favourite thing, and uh, the f my favourite artist is beauty, and I think uh, when I listen to, I don't want to be too trite about this, but say Bach's Matthew Passion, or even Wagner's The Ring, I am deeply moved, and I don't feel that's just a subjective reaction, as though I could be just as deeply moved by watching Neighbours on television. There's something, something more important, there's something more serious, there's something about, it's some sort of information, but it's not verbal, of course. You know the story about the ballerina Pavlova, who did a very spectacular and beautiful dance, and was asked afterwards, well, what did it mean? And she said, well, if I could tell you what it meant, I wouldn't have bothered to dance it. So it meant what it did. It conveyed a meaning. So doesn't art convey meaning? Don't you distinguish between good and bad art by saying, well, the good art conveys a deep sense of meaning, and bad art, well, it's comparatively superficial and doesn't have the same insight. I think it's very difficult to listen to the Matthew Passion and not think there is some depth of insight about human tragedy and human beauty and about feelings which communicate the essential nature of something real. So why don't we try saying feelings actually are cognitive? They tell you something, not in words. Why should it be that only words tell you something? You make a description of something. No, even words in poetry say things that words in prose can't say. And what is that? What is that that they're saying? Well, they're communicating a personal vision of some sort. And that personal vision is something about how things are with human life and with the universe. Something that you don't always know. Something you can find out. And it's not only that, <coughs> but some people are much better at this than others. Some people are totally gifted with imaginative insight. Think of Mozart and think of me. I used to compose music. I torn it up and burnt it long ago. But Mozart's fortunately not. And you think, well, here's a depth of insight in originality. You have skill, but it's not just skill. It's got to do with what is communicated in that music as well. And what is communicated? Well, you have to play the music. And you may be sensitive to it or not. So there's an element of sensitivity comes into this as well. And this is very different from the dispassionate sort of knowledge which just recites a whole set of facts. It's some sort of intuition of how things are which can be communicated by art at its best. I think the person who writes very well about this is Iris Murdoch, in fact. She's got a little book called The Sovereignty of Good in which she holds that art actually does communicate goodness. Now, 
I'm not sure if that's true of some of the artists I can think of uh, in the contemporary world, of whom I will not name. Um, but it communicates something, and it, it, if they're good artists, it does communicate something significant. Well, my son is an artist, you know, and he does things, and uh, sometimes, stupidly, I used to say at first, what does this mean? And um, he would say, well, what do you think it means? So that was, a, you know, was hopeless, really. So again, something you can't communicate, but you can learn to appreciate, and that word appreciation is so important, really. You can learn to appreciate the depth of something. And you, if you do that, you see something in it which many people can't see. And you're exercising a creative cognitive capacity which you can learn. You can have music appreciation classes or art appreciation classes. You learn better how to do it. But it's not just learning a technique. It's learning a way of insight. And by insight, you're learning something about reality. So I want to say, yes, art, beauty, is some quality of that real world which we don't ever experience. It's not all just electrons and atoms and quarks or whatever it is. That in itself is another abstract intellectual postulate. But the real world also communicates through art, through the use of sound and color in a patterned and integrated way to evoke a sense of what is truly real beneath all the superficial appearances which we so often see in life. So art communicates value. And I think that value, <coughs> the value, demands our attention. So good art demands that we attend to it. And I want to say two things about this. First of all, the value is objective. The value of great art whether it's painting, music, or literature, the value of great art is that it's objective. It's not just a matter of what we like. There are things I can think of that I don't like, but which I admit to be great art. And I say, well, that's my fault. I just don't like that. Wagner's Ring just sends me to sleep in 10 minutes, but it's great art. And you can say that. And you can say, well, I could possibly learn to appreciate it, but I just don't have time. In my next life, I might do that. You can say these things, but you can make the difference between what you like and what you can learn to appreciate and what you ought to appreciate. Now, there's an ought coming in. You ought to appreciate great art. If you don't, you're missing something. Now, it's not a duty quite. It's not like a moral duty. It's just a human failing if you don't do it. And you might not blame somebody for having that feeling. You say, it's a pity, though. It's a pity that you're missing that. So it's not quite moral. But there is a sort of demandingness about art which says, here's an objective value, something you ought to appreciate, something that is good to appreciate, something that would fulfill your life if you appreciated it, because it's part of what reality is, and it appears, it has to appear, in this particular set of sensory, whether oral or visual, in this set of sensory marks. So again, that sense of transcendence coming in art through sense experiences, is an intuition of reality. And I'd call that an intuition of a spiritual dimension. It's non-physical. It's an objective value. It makes demands upon you. It fulfills a distinctive human cognitive capacity. Art is cognitive. I don't mean by that you can describe what it means. 
And when people describe their paintings or their music, it's less satisfactory. It may help you to understand it, but in the end, you have to appreciate the thing for what it is because what is mediated through experience is a reality which is sui generis. It's unique to itself. And to appreciate it, you must learn how to know it. Well, that's art. Now, getting rather brief now, I'm afraid, because almost time to stop. I want to talk about, say a word about morality. <coughs> morality is a very um, controversial subject, of course. And there are plenty of philosophers these days who say morality is just a question of social conventions and rules for living together, or maybe even long-term prudence. There are lots of explanations that are also sociological bio explanations that morality is what used to be biologically efficient millions of years ago, and so it's just been genetically put into our brains. All right, those are all, there are, there are different positions. But if you're an empiricist, you start with experience, the experience of obligation, of the experience of morality, of the experience uh, of... Well, let me take an instance, Jean-Paul Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre used to be, when he was young, an existentialist, and he wrote a little book, still used as a textbook in schools, called Existentialism as Humanism. He later on rejected this book and, and uh, disclaimed uh, it, so it's a bit ironic it still uses a text. Uh, but in that book, he set forth the philosophy, which he later discounted, of existentialism. And he meant by that the lack of moral seriousness. Right? Now, moral seriousness, he thought, Sartre thought, <clears throat> is the view that there really are objective moral obligations. Just as in art, you have, I've suggested, values which demand attention. So in morality, you have actions which demand your practical response. Again, it's a matter of objective value. These things are real. You don't make them up. You don't invent morality. It comes to you as something that demands your action. Well, that's what Sartre, when he was an existentialist, denied. He has an example in existentialism, as humanism, of somebody ask, coming with a moral question, said, should I look after my mother, who's frail, or should I go and fight, this was during the war, Second World War, should I go and um, fight for the resistance? And Sartre says, well, actually, there's no answer to that question because there are no objective moral truths. So if you ask a moral question, there isn't a correct answer. There's nothing correct. You decide, and that's existentialism. You decide. You do decide on behalf of all human beings for some reason, but he said, but nevertheless, it's your decision. He later came to think this was totally wrong, and he recorded the instance which made him think it was wrong. He said he was walking on a, through a road in Algeria, and he passed a starving child, and he thought, am I free just to decide whether to pay attention to this child or not? And he thought, no, I'm not free. Although freedom was the great watchword of existentialism, he thought at this point he was not morally free to turn away. And of course, when you come across a serious moral situation, <coughs> a situation of gross injustice, or, or a situation in which somebody is in great need, you're not free. You're not, you are free. You can ignore it. Yes, that's true. But you're not morally free. There is an impulsion. There is a, a demandingness about it. 
which means that you are going to lose something of your humanity if you don't respond. So Sartre came to feel moral seriousness is okay. There are objective obligations. So what I'm saying here is here's another sort of experience which we're all familiar with at some times in our life, not all the time, but occasionally, and when we think about it, that there are things we really ought to do. It's not that we decide to do them, it's that we really think whether we decide to do them or not, we know we ought to do them. I ought to do something about world hunger, whether or not I do. And that feeling that you ought, is it an intuition of something real, something objective? Is there something in your experience which is revealing something transcendent, something beyond what appears to you, but which is actually a value? So what I'm suggesting in this first lecture is just that, uh, yes, all knowledge begins with experience. Yes, all experience needs to be interpreted. But empiricists <coughs> have sometimes, not in the case of Locke and Berkeley, but sometimes in the case of Hume, said, well, there are just the experiences and they don't communicate anything of transcendent value. In fact, value is not something you learn about. It's not anything objective at all. There are no values existing in reality. There are only, well, what? I mean, Hume didn't know what, but you might say physical things. Hume didn't quite think that. Uh, or you might say just the sense data themselves, as though they were just there without being interpreted. So the empiricists always had that problem. And I think it's a perfectly good empiricist uh, view, which Bishop Barclay, I'm nearest to Bishop Barclay of all the empiricists, it's a perfectly good view to say, in experience, a transcendent reality is experienced by you in a unique way, in your personal experience. And it's not only that there is a world of physical objects and brains out there, and you say, yes, there is, but it's also that there is beauty and there is moral obligation. There are objective values which communicate themselves through my experience. Now, that is what I'm calling experience of a spiritual dimension. It doesn't necessarily involve God. Iris Murdoch, whom I've mentioned, didn't like God. Uh, and G.E. Moore, <coughs> who took a, a view about morality, roughly like mine, didn't like God either, so they didn't like God. But they did believe something that was transcendent to physical reality. And that leaves them with the philosophical question, what on earth can this objective value be? I mean, if the universe is an accidental collocation of bits of material, unconscious, purposeless stuff, and that's what it is, and we are parts of that universe, is there any room in such a universe for such a thing as an objective value? Something I'm not inventing, I'm discerning through my experience. Or have I got to say that's just an illusion? Well, I've had to be pretty superficial in parts, and I'm sorry about that, but I've done it rather quickly. I do want to say that this is a very serious philosophical position, and that it competes with others. And in my next talk, I'll talk more about the competing philosophical positions and the underlying philosophy uh, I'll take it a little bit further. So I'm, for this morning, what I've been doing is trying to say there are definitely dimensions of human experience which are dimensions of transcendence, and virtually everybody believes that because they believe 
experience tells you about an external physical world, but there are also, very importantly, experiences of transcendent value. And in art and in morality, we see things which somehow make a claim upon our lives. The claim has to come through experience. There's not a world of values existing parallel to this one somewhere else. But somehow in our experience, those values are stated, expressed in a way which otherwise could not be expressed. And it's our creative response that reveals what those values are. So this is, as it were, a beginning of thinking about a spiritual dimension. Of course, what I'm going on to say is, well, actually, if you think about <coughs> God, you don't have to bring this into art of morality at all. In fact, there's well known to be quite a war between some uh, art and some religion. And Plato was very famous uh, for wanting to censor poetry because it wasn't morally good enough. So uh, it's not a very straightforward issue. But I would say, well, this is, as it were, the camel's nose in the tent. You begin saying, if I take art and morality really seriously, I'm going to say there is a spiritual dimension to life. And then I've got to ask the question, how could I understand that? What, what sense do I have to make as a sort of postulate of some sort of the world to make sense of that being objective values? So that's been my claim today. Uh, and I think I'd leave you with the, just the name John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill, of course, allegedly a utilitarian, though he wasn't really. Why not? <laughs> because the real utilitarian was Jeremy Bentham. And Jeremy Bentham said, infamously, pushpin is as good as poetry. That is to say, whatever makes you happy is okay. Right? The greatest happiness is the greatest number. Happiness is whatever you say it is. Do what you want. And Mill said, ah, I don't really believe that. And Mill said, I believe that the mental pleasures, that is to say, those distinctive qualities of the human mind which are able to appreciate beauty and to respond to morality, those are on a different qualitative level. They're concerned with happiness, but it's a special sort of happiness. The happiness you get from art and from morality is not necessarily happiness anyone would choose, but perhaps it's a sort of happiness which anyone ought to choose. And maybe it's not so well known that Mill actually said probably the best support for this view is the existence of a god of some sort. It's a bit vague about what sort it was, but the idea of some reality within which objective values could exist. So let me leave you with a final thought. That maybe forget about the God person who going around having all sorts of strange ideas, but instead think of the objective existence of value making itself expressed in the nature of human experience. Maybe you've got the beginning of an idea of God. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.